بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وافضل الصلاه واتم التسليم على سيدنا محمد الصادق الامين وعلى اله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته الى يوم الدين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما انك على كل شيء قدير اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد في الاولين وصل وسلم على سيدنا محمد في الاخرين وصل وسلم عليه في الملا الاعلى الى يوم الدين وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته الحمد لله والشكر لله i am very happy to be back in our class the radiant light covering the radiant life of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wasallam and this is the Medinan period which is substantially larger than the Meccan period in terms of details and what we cover and earlier as I was looking at the material that we want to teach and cover I tried to fit everything into a certain time frame but I have now reached the conclusion that all such time frames have to be thrown out the window and we just have to go forward uh, as Allah Ta'ala facilitates and makes it easy despite whatever breaks we may take here and there there's no reason to rush through the journey and skip over really important details and we don't know where which detail will be that detail that really impacts us the most everything in the life of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is impactful for us as muslims but certain events and lessons are more impactful than others for different people sometimes when i'm thinking about a story in the life of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and its lessons certain things stand out for me as quite profound and other things don't stand out as profound as those things but then when i talk about them someone comes up and says you know that thing you said was really profound and it wasn't what i was thinking it was something else so we don't know what in the seerah will be the thing that impacts you and gives you that critical paradigm shift in how you look at your relationship to allah ta'ala your relationship and connection with the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and your life as a member of the ummah of sayyiduna muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam so all such schedules and plans i'm just tossing out the window bismillah we move forward now before the break we spent a number of weeks talking about the things that led up to the battle of badr yawmul furqan the day in which the criteria between truth and falsehood was established in no uncertain terms we spent many weeks talking about the lead up to that battle we talked a lot about the journey to Badr and what took place the things that took place right before the battle escalated and we talked about the battle itself that was where we left off talking about the nitty-gritty details of who fought whom and when and how and we said that when you look at the seerah accounts about Badr it's really about 15 to 20 different narrations worded in different ways and organized in different ways so it's difficult to piece all of them together in in a, a very strict timeline you know this happened first and this happened second we know who fell first and we know the initial mubaraza confrontation the hand to hand man to man combat before the battle but once the battle started in earnest and people were in the throws of combat well certain things happened here and there and we don't know which one came first which one came second so we piece them together as best as we can using the sources left behind by our great scholars who wrote on the seerah of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam so we're after the battle the aftermath of badr but there are still many more lessons to draw from the battle and many more things happening there at badr and things that happen on the way back and in medina as a direct result of badr so we are still very much badri centric in our focus 
for the next couple of weeks at least. Before we look at the aftermath of the battle and the lessons, we want to look at an issue that was brought up in the previous lesson towards the end. Um, so we want to go back just a little bit and reconstruct the story to answer a question that someone had, who someone had asked. So we want to go back to the story of Amr ibn Hisham. Who is Amr ibn Hisham? What do we know him as? Abu something. Abu Jahl. Abu Jahl, Amr ibn Hisham. Abu Jahl was, his ending was very pivotal in the story. And it's recorded in great detail in the seerah. And we said in the previous class that when the mushrikun, the idol worshippers, saw Iblis, who was in the form of who? Suraqa ibn Malik. He, he took on this physical form looking like Suraqa ibn Malik. When the mushrikun saw Iblis in the form of Suraqa fleeing the battle and running away, the ranks of the mushrikeen began to break. And when the battle ranks begin to break, what does that mean? It means they're dissipating. Their strength is diminishing. Their force is dissipating. There's weakness in the ranks. Imagine if you're, you know, we have these games as children. I don't know if you, if you had this game back home, right? But in America, we have a game called Red Rover, Red Rover. Anyone heard of that game? I don't know if they even play it anymore. Have you heard of that game? Okay. So the game is you have two teams. Uh, let's say you have 10 people on each side. Each side is going to link up as a solid row. They're, they're linking up, interlocking their arms. And one side will say, Red Rover, Red Rover, Sintaha, right over. And your job from the other side is to run as fast as you can to try to break the rank of the opposing force. Their law, arms are interlocked, so it's kind of like football, except there's no ball, and you're just trying to break through somehow. Now, if that line, imagine playing Red Rover and no one's locking their arms together. Everyone can come through. So that's kind of what happens. The, the forces were diminishing. The Mushrikeen are leaving. Right, But there's one person who didn't want to withdraw. They're still fighting, you know. It's in pockets here and there, different groups. But the forces are diminishing and people are fleeing. You know, one of the things we didn't say is that when you look at Badr, the plains of Badr, there's this flat area and it's surrounded by these large hills, these dunes. And the way it's laid out, the Prophet actually gave the mushrikun an exit. There was an exit for them to make. There was an area where they could easily leave, a pass. They weren't surrounded by all, at all sides. You know, imagine what would happen if a group is surrounded by all sides and there's no escape. How do you think they're going to fight? They're going to fight as if their very lives depended on it. They'll fight very ferociously. But if they're fighting and their forces are diminishing, and they see there's a passageway, there's a way out. Well, let's go. They'll, they'll leave. And there's a lesson in that, right? You know, you give people a way out, even your enemies. Give them a way out so they can take the high road, do the right thing, and avoid escalating the conflict. So they're leaving. But one person didn't want to leave, and that was Abu Jahl. Abu Jahl didn't want to leave. He went forward to fight on. And he wasn't alone. There was a band of young fighters with him, basically surrounding him and protecting him. And the Muslims see this. They know he can't be reached easily and they want to access him. They want to get to him. But it's not going to be an easy fight because they have to go through all these young men who are surrounding him. So the Hadith narrations mention that as the fight was going on, as people were leaving, as it was scattering, everything is thinning out minute by minute and that included the people around Abu Jahl so they saw that there was a way to get to him and they took their chance so the hadith mentions that he was confronted by two teenagers 
from the Muslims. The first was Mu'adh ibn Amr ibn al-Jumuh, and the other was Mu'awwad ibn Afra radiallahu anhuma. Now the hadith says that they were both fighting in the vicinity of Sayyiduna Abdul Rahman ibn Awf. Abdul Rahman ibn Awf knew Abu Jahl. He knew what he looks like. These two young men don't know what he looks like because they're from the Ansar. They're not from the people of Mecca. They're asking Abdul Rahman ibn Awf to pinpoint Abu Jahl's location to identify him. So the hadith says that they're fighting and they nudge him and say, Aina Abu Jahl, where is he? And as the fight escalates, Abdul Rahman ibn Awf sees Abu Jahl and he tells these young men, he shouts at them saying, there's your man, there's your guy. And they go running to get after him and they make their way to Abu Jahl. So the hadith says that Abu Jahl was in this palm grove. Now, if you've been to Medina, you'll see these, like if you go, for instance, just driving around Medina, you'll see these palm groves in different places. And you could easily see how it will be a tough fight in, inside of such palm grove because these are not firearms, these are swords. How are you going to fight with a sword against someone who is in the thick of palm trees and they have some people with them? You want to have them in a more open area. So he's in some palm grove and they go inside to get after him. So the story of Mu'adh, uh, of Mu'adh ibn Amr says that he went through into the trees because he's worried that he's not going to get to Abu Jahl. He gets nearby, he jumps up with his sword, to and he's jumping and moving to close that distance, and he thrusts down and he tries to strike Abu Jahl, and he strikes him, but he's also stopped. There's people around him blocking him. So he comes with the full force of the sword, onto the left leg of Abu Jahl and it completely severs Abu Jahl's leg. Now Abu Jahl's son, Ikrimah, is there trying to defend his father. So he swings his sword at Mu'adh ibn Amr and it basically chops his right arm off. And Mu'adh survived this, surprisingly enough, he survived it. And he's a young man, he's strong, he survived it, he got medical attention, and he lived out the rest of his days with that missing arm. So Mu'adh ibn Amr later narrates, and we mentioned this, that the arm got sliced off, but it's still hanging, still dangling. And he pulled it off from that piece of flesh, yanking on it to free it up so he could engage in fighting properly. And he's using his left hand for the rest of the battle. And he died during the Khilafah of Sayyidina Uthman, much later on in history. That's his story with Abu Jahl. Now you come to the story of Mu'awwad ibn Afra, the other teenager from the Ansar, who goes to confront Abu Jahl. Both of them are competing to get after him. Mu'awwad got a hit. Abu Jahl's not finished though. Mu'awwad ibn Afra makes his move. Now you'll remember that Mu'awwad ibn Afra was among the young men who first volunteered to engage in the Mubaraza, the one-to-one -one combat, before the battle started. And he wasn't able to do that. Some of the others of Quraysh went forward instead. But he gets his chance now to go after Abu Jahl in combat. So he reaches Abu Jahl and he strikes him. But the hadith narrations don't mention exactly where his sword struck him. And we know from the narrations that after this took place, he went on to engage in other skirmishes here and there on the battlefield. You know, people think about movies. They think of the battlefield as this static place. But there's many skirmishes here and there. So he goes and he's fighting elsewhere. He sees this skirmish. He gets killed in the battle after, later on after dealing his blow to Abu Jahl. Now, before he's killed later in the battle, the two of them go to the Prophet ﷺ and they say, I killed Abu Jahl. Both of them are making this claim. So who did it? Was it Mu'adh ibn Amr or Mu'awwad uh, ibn Afra? Both of them are saying, I killed Abu Jahl. And then they start to argue about who killed Abu Jahl. I did. 
No, I did. Oh, it was me. No, it was me. And the Prophet ﷺ wanted to settle the dispute. So he asked them, show me your swords. And they showed him the swords. And the Prophet ﷺ says, the both of you have killed him. What does that mean? It means that both wounds they dealt combined were the cause of Abu Jahl being killed. Now this hadith is actually before the soul of Abu Jahl left his body. He's killed in the sense that these are mortal wounds. He's not going to survive these wounds, but he's not yet dead. He's not yet dead. And this is something we didn't touch on. And we're going to link this to the question that was asked uh, in the previous class. Someone asked, what about the narration that says that it was Abdullah ibn Mas'ud who killed Abu Jahl? How do we reconcile these narrations which say that Mu'adh and Mu'awwith bin Afra killed Abu Jahl and another narration says it was Abdullah ibn Mas'ud? So what's going on? Well, we have to understand that when they struck Abu Jahl, they didn't just strike him and sit there. They struck him. They're also getting struck and they're moving on and engaging in other skirmishes. So they hit him and kept moving, right? So they dealt the death blow, but he hadn't yet died. When they get to the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ says, show me your swords. And seeing the swords, he says, both of you killed him, even though he hasn't died yet. So the Prophet ﷺ gives an order for the companions to go around and look for who among Quraysh has been slain in battle. This is important. This is a form of gathering intelligence. You have to know who of the enemy fell in battle, who of them got away. And the more seniors, the more chiefs of Quraysh slain in battle, the better for the Muslims in terms of victory because they are the movers and shakers in society. They were the main instigators of the oppression when the Muslims were in Mecca all those years. So he sends the companions to look among the, those who are slain on the battlefield to identify who got killed. So Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, he is going around looking for these bodies. And who does he see lying there in the palm grove? He sees Abu Jahl, but he's not dead yet. Abu Jahl is lying there. Ibn Mas'ud sees him. And now Ibn Mas'ud is not an Ansari, is he? He's from Ahl Mecca. And we remember the stories of him reciting the Quran in the Haram and getting beat down. So he sees Abu Jahl and he recognizes him. What does he do? The narration says that he goes and puts his foot on his chest. Now, one of the things you have to understand, because maybe you're imagining what Ibn Mas'ud looks like. You have an image in your mind of what he looks like. You're imagining Abu Jahl, what he looks like. But understand that Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu is not a very large man. He's quite short and his legs are quite skinny. And there's a hadith about his skinny legs. The hadith mentions that he was, I believe he was on a tree limb, just he climbed the tree. He's sitting on the limb and he's wearing the izar, the lungi, and his legs are exposed. And they can see his calf muscles. And some of the Sahaba noticed that his legs are very, very skinny. And you know, whenever you get men around other men and they're, on, they're friends with each other, there's this lighthearted banter. You're gonna, you're gonna joke with someone and you can laugh at their expense and it's all in good cheer, you know? And they see his skinny legs and they begin to laugh at him. Maybe if you, you know, maybe if you have skinny legs and you're around your friends and they see them when you're wearing shorts, they say, oh, you have toothpicks for legs and they're just laughing. It's all in good fun. And they see his skinny legs and they begin to laugh. And the Prophet wasallam says that those skinny legs are incredibly weighty on the scale on the day of judgment. Those feet, those skinny legs 
they walked in obedience to Allah and in sacrifice for the sake of Allah and in hijrah to Allah and His Messenger and towards jihad fi sabirillah. They're very weighty in the sight of Allah in terms of spiritual value. So that's just to give you an idea of his stature. He's very short, he's very skinny. Yet as he's scouting for the dead, he sees Abu Jahl, he's still alive, and he puts his foot on his chest. That skinny leg with that foot is on the chest of Abu Jahl, who's a very large uh, and a very pompous, arrogant individual as well. So the narration says that he puts his foot on Abu Jahl's chest and he says, Ah, look how Allah has put you to shame. Look how Allah has shamed you and debased you because he was high and mighty. And now look at him. Leg is missing, he's wounded, he's dying, and now that skinny leg is on his chest. That foot is on his chest. And Abu Jahl, you know, you'd think, you lost a leg, you're wounded, you're dying, you know this is it. You'd think that that person would be a bit humble in this situation, but he couldn't even be humble in this situation. He says, how has, she, how has he shamed me? A man killed by his own people? What does he mean by that? He's basically putting the blame on the Muslims. It's as if he's saying, how has Allah shamed me? A man killed by his own people? This is your fault? This is your fault. This is all because of you. We didn't do anything. So he's absolving himself of any responsibility for the conflict. So then Abu Jahl asks Ibn Mas'ud. He says, what is the outcome of the battle? What's going on? He's lying on the ground. Things are still going on here and there, but it's more or less done. He asks, what's the outcome of the battle? Who's won? And Ibn Mas'ud says, Allah and His Messenger have won. Victory is for Allah and His Messenger. And to this, Abu Jahl notices the foot on the chest. He sees it and he says, Ah, you've climbed very high, you little shepherd boy. Because Ibn Mas'ud was a shepherd. Ra'il Ghanab. He's small, short in stature. And Abu Jahl has this puffed up chest. So he says, you've climbed really high. You put your, your foot on my chest. You see the arrogance? You've climbed really high, you little shepherd boy. That's what he says to him in these final moments. And at this point, the hadith says that Ibn Mas'ud took the sword belonging to Abu Jahl to use for delivering the final blow. But, or sorry, he took his own sword rather. Uh, but it was dull from the fighting. And so he took Abu Jahl's sword because he couldn't use his own. And he used that sword to deliver the final death blow. So how do you reconcile these narrations? Who killed Abu Jahl? If you only look at this narration, you would say that it's Ibn Mas'ud. But we have the words of the Prophet affirming that Abu Jahl was killed by Mu'adh ibn Amr and Mu'awud ibn Affara. What's more, we know from the story that the armor went to whom? It went to the armor of Abu Jahl, which is the Ghanima, or in this case, it's what's captured by direct combat. Who did that go to? It went to Mu'adh ibn Amr, not Mu'awud ibn Afra, because he got killed. It would have been distributed evenly between the two because both of them had a role in slaying Abu Jahl. But because Mu'awud was killed in battle, it went to Mu'adh ibn Amr. Had the slaying of Abu Jahl been by Ibn Mas'ud only, he would have had the armor. He didn't get the armor. This tells us that although, yes, it's true, Ibn Mas'ud dealt the death blow, if he hadn't dealt the death blow, he would have died from the wounds delivered by Mu'adh ibn Amr and Mu'awwid ibn Afra. Therefore, they are the ones who took him out in the Battle of Badr. And that's how you reconcile the narrations. So where are we now? Now, most of Quraysh by now have escaped. They had that way out. And this was a decisive victory Allah gave the Muslims. Allah Ta'ala calls it in the Qur'an, Yawm al-Furqan, the day of the criteria. The Furqan is that thing that distinguishes very clearly 
truth from falsehood. This was the day of the Furqan. And it said in the Seerah accounts that some 50 to 70 of Quraysh were mortally wounded and killed in battle, or they were overtaken and cut down as they fled. And it is said about the same number, 50 to 70 were taken as captives. And there's a lot to be said about those captives and what happened. That's coming next week, inshallah, when we talk about the captives and the lessons in that story. So among those killed, we know chief among them was Abu Jahl. But there is also other major figures among Quraysh that were slain in the battle, such as Umayyah ibn Khalaf. As a reminder, let's ask, who is Umayyah ibn Khalaf? And what is he known for among the great enemies of Allah and his messenger and the Ummah? What is he known for in the seerah the most? Torturing Bilal. Everyone knows that story. Right? If, you, if you've any basic story of Sirah, people hear as children, they hear that story of how Umayyah bin Khalaf would torture his slave Bilal by putting a large rock on him, pinning him down in the hot sands, uh, or pinning him down on hot rocks in the middle of the day, forcing him to recant his Islam. And what did Bilal say in those instances? Ahadun ahad. Ahadun ahad. Right? So Umayyah bin Khalaf is in this battle. Well, we know that he gets slain too. But his story is very interesting. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of lessons in it too. The ultimate lesson in the slaying of Umayyah bin Khalaf is, as the saying goes, Kamatudinu tudan. Kamatadinu tudan means the way you are in this world is the way you're going to get dealt with by Allah. So if you deal with people justly, then Allah has His mercy upon you, right? If you are unjust to people, you're going to face the consequences of your injustice. So you see that in the story of Umayyah bin Khalaf. Now for this story, it's in all of the seerah works, but we go to Ibn Hisham, and Ibn Hisham seerah, he tells the story of how Umayyah got slain at Badr. Now, we know that he tortured Bilal. That's common knowledge. But what's not common knowledge is that Umayyah ibn Khalaf was very close friends with Sayyiduna Abdul Rahman ibn Auf. They were close friends in Jahiliyyah. And even during these times, they maintained a friendly relationship because they have ties to each other. Now, Abdurrahman ibn Auf wasn't always Abdurrahman. The name was changed. And as a rule, when a person becomes a Muslim, they don't have to change their name. There's no Islamic reason mandating that a person changes their name as long as the name has a good meaning. If the name has a bad meaning, or it's associated with kufr or worshipping other than Allah, then that name needs to be changed. So if a person becomes a Muslim and their name is Robert or John or Bill or whatever, those names don't need to be changed. But if their name is Abdu Shems, the servant of the sun, for instance, that would be changed. Abdu Shems gets changed to Abdurrahman ibn Sakhar, which is Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu. Abdurrahman ibn Auf, his name before Islam is Abdu Amr, right? Ab, the servant of Amr, right? That's a human being. That name has to be changed. So they were close friends. And after Abdurrahman ibn Auf embraced Islam, the name got changed to Abdurrahman. But Umayyah ibn Khalaf didn't like this name. And he refused to call his friend by his new name, Abdurrahman. He says, I don't know who this Rahman is. So, and Allah mentions this in the Quran, how they would disbelieve in Ar-Rahman as a divine name. So he says, I don't know who this Rahman is. So Abdurrahman ibn Auf says, I'm not going to change my name back. I'm not going to... Uh, 
uh, allow anyone to ad- I won't recognize anyone addressing me by that name. So then Umayyah compromised in a way. He says, okay, well, how about if I call you Abdul Ilah? Abdul Ilah. Abd Al Ilah. Al Ilah, God, the divinity. Is that a good name? Absolutely. And so Abdurrahman ibn Auf accepted this compromise, and his friend Umayyah would call him by this name, Abdul Ilah, and not Abdurrahman. So that's a bit of uh, subtext and background to the story. Now, when Quraysh had fled after the victory given to the Muslims at Badr, Umayyah, he, he's looking around for people who can offer protection. Because this is how it works. If you're not out of there, you're done. Like, so it's either you battle and you win, or you flee, or you get cut down. That's, there's only, the only three options available. They didn't win. He didn't get to escape among those who fled. So the third option is that he gets cut down. The only way he can escape that is if he seeks protection from someone with influence who takes him as a prisoner or who says, I will give him a guarantee of protection. In this context, that guarantee of protection is going to be as a prisoner. So he's looking, who do I know who can take me as a prisoner and protect me so I can save my skin? That's what he's looking for. So as he's looking around, who passes by? Abdurrahman ibn Auf. So he says, Ya Abd Amr. Abdul Amr, he's using his old name. Abdurrahman ibn Auf ignored that. And then he remembered and he says, Ya Abd Ilah. And he looks at him, he says, yes. So he acknowledged the name, not the original name. So he says, Ya Abdul Ilah. What if, now some background here, what is Abdurrahman doing when he passes by? The story, the hadith says that he encounters Umayyah as he's carrying lots of armor that he captured from the slain fighters at Badr. So armor is heavy. So we're talking breastplates, helmets, shields. This is very expensive. This is a lot of money, right? So he's carrying these in both arms. And then he passes by Umayyah. Umayyah calls out to him, Abdul Ilah. And then Umayyah says, what if I were to give you much more than this armor you're carrying? What if I were to give you many milking camels? Not just camels, but fertile camels with lots of milk. Get rid of the armor, he said, and protect me. Take me as a prisoner, and I'll give you as much as you want. He's not, so this is it's like a pre-ransom, even before he's taken as a prisoner. He's offering what he can give to save his skin. Now, you have to also understand that this is all happening in the immediate aftermath of Badr, when victory is given to the Muslims. This is also happening before Allah Ta'ala has revealed verses detailing the laws governing prisoners of war. And we're going to be talking about that next week. The, the laws about the Asra, the prisoners of war, have not been revealed. So any decision made is based on a presumption of permissibility, a kind of default allowance to deal with these things as one sees fit. So Abdurrahman Ibn Auf, he says that he tossed aside the armor and decided that he would accept the offer of his old friend Umayyah bin Khalaf, take him as a prisoner and get the money. After all, Abdurrahman bin Auf is a businessman. So he's looking at the cost of the armor, the price, the price he may fetch for it versus all these camels. And there's nothing saying you can't take the prisoner. So why not? So he tosses aside the armor and he agrees to take Umayyah bin Khalaf as his prisoner in return for getting these camels and all the wealth that Umayyah is promising him to save his own skin. So now he has his old friend as a prisoner and they're walking. And as they're walking by, guess who sees them? Bilal, 
radiallahu anhu. Of all the people who see this, is Bilal radiallahu anhu. How do you think he's going to feel about this? Now, put yourself in Bilal's shoes. You experience what you experience at the hands of this tyrannical, wretched man. And here he is in the battlefield. And the battle's still warm. It's still, it's still on. And you see a fellow companion of the Prophet sallallahu taking him as a prisoner. Wouldn't you want to have Adam? Most, most healthy people would if they went through that. So Bilal sees this and he says, Umayyah bin Khalaf, Ratsul Kufar, the leader of the disbelievers, may I not live if he survives. May I not live if he lives. Now Abdurrahman has a problem here. Abdurrahman says, Ya Bilal, these are my prisoners, with the plural, because he has Umayyah's son as well. These are my prisoners. And they go back and forth. Bilal keeps saying, no. Ratsul Kufar, may I not live if he lives. May I not live if he lives. And they're going back and forth. So you have to understand, this is the same voice that cried, Ahadun Ahad. The same voice that caused the Adhan. This is the same voice. And he's raising his voice saying, May I not live if Umayyah ibn Khalaf lives. So as he's raising his voice, other Muslims are hearing it. And it's now creating a scene. People are now going over to see what's going on. And they go and they see indeed it is Umayyah ibn Khalaf. So here's Abdurrahman ibn Auf taking him as a prisoner along with his son. And Bilal has now created this uproar and the Ansar are basically encircling Abdurrahman and Umayyah ibn Khalaf. So picture the two here in a crowd is surrounding them from all sides. So this is what it, how it's described. This is coming from the recollection of Sayyidina Abdurrahman ibn Auf. He's telling this story. So he says, that the Ansar surrounded us in a circle and they began prodding. So one of them is, one of them struck Umayyah's son in the leg. So they're basically trying to get at them. Doesn't matter if you took him as a prisoner, we're gonna get them. We're going to exact justice for what they have done in the battlefield. So this is completely legitimate. You're not gonna take them as prisoner. So in that crowd, they're poking at them. Abdurrahman ibn Auf realizes that this is a done deal. There's nothing he can do anymore. He's overpowered. He's outnumbered. So he says to Umayyah and his son, flee for your lives. Wallahi, I can't do you any good at all. Just try to get out of here. Do what you can. I can't protect you. So the Ansar, you know, can they flee at this stage? They can't. They try, but they can't. So the Ansar basically surrounds Umayyah ibn Khalaf and his son, and they strike them both, killing them. And this is justice. This was in the battlefield. It's completely legitimate, shara'an. Now, it's Abdurrahman ibn Auf telling the story, and he's telling it many years later, recollecting the events. And with, after the years went by, he said, reflecting on it, he says, May Allah have mercy on Bilal. Not only... Did he stop me from getting my two ransoms, Umayyah and his son? I also never got the armor back. He dropped the armor. He didn't, he didn't get it back. Someone else picked it up because it's this is before all of these verses were revealed about the nature of the ghanima and how you do it. He didn't get that either. So he says, Rahimullah Bilal. I lost the ransoms and I lost the armor. So what's interesting about this story is that out of all of the idol worshippers who were slain at Badr, all of them were buried except for Umayyah bin Khalaf. All of them were buried except for him. He was on this bed of rocks. And the reason why is because his body began to decompose so rapidly that any attempt to move it, it would fall apart. So they left it on a bed of rocks. There's no way they could actually transport it 
and put it inside the well in which the bodies of the mushrikun were placed. So he is put on a bed of rocks. Whenever they try to lift him, the flesh would decompose even further. Okay, he's a very, they say he was a very large man. So they let him be and they covered the body with more rocks to uh, block the stench and the decomposition, all of that. Uh, they put him on a bed of rocks and they put a, t- a pile of rocks on top of him. Note the irony. The irony. Here is a man who tortured Bilal radiallahu anhu by doing what exactly? Putting him on a bed of hot rocks and putting rocks on top of him. And here he is slain at Badr, body decomposing, being placed on a bed of hot rocks and rocks placed on top of him. The same rocks used to torture Bilal to renounce Islam are the same kind of rocks being put on top of his body after death. As you are in life, so you shall be treated after death. That's a reality. And that's a great lesson from the, the story of Umayyah uh, and him being slayed at Badr. Now, there's others. And we don't need to go through every single minute detail of who was killed and how. But those are the two main chieftains of Quraysh slain at Badr. What about the Muslims? How many Muslims were slain at Badr? There were 14. So 14 to 5, between 50 and 70 among Quraysh. 14 shuhada of Badr, right? We're not talking about shuhada of Uhud, talking about Badr, 14. And in the Sira works, uh, the, the medium size and larger Sira works, they mention the names of the Badriyun who were slain. And they mentioned the Badriyun who participated and who survived. And of the 14, we want to mention them by name. Why? Are you going to remember these names after next week? Most of them are relatively obscure for us because we're not used to hearing their names. They died in the second year after Hijrah. So chances are we're going to forget these names. So why would we read their names? It's to honor their sacrifice. To honor their sacrifice. The fact that we are here right now talking about the life of the Prophet ﷺ in North America in a house of Allah because those individuals were martyred. So we owe it to them to honor them and the smallest way we can honor them is to just mention their names and to say radiyallahu anhum. So I want to list out the names of those who were slain at Badr. The ulama mention Sayyiduna, Sayyiduna Haritha ibn Suraqa of the Khazraj radiallahu anhu. They mention Dhu Shimalayn ibn Abdi Amr, a Muhajir radiallahu anhu. And Rafi' ibn Al-Mu'alla al-Khazraji from the Khazraj radiallahu anhu. And Sa'ad ibn Khaythama al-Awsi of the Ansar radiallahu anhu. Safwan ibn Wahab of the Muhajirun radiallahu anhu. Aqil ibn Bukair of the Muhajirun radiallahu anhu. Ubaida ibn al-Harith of the Muhajirun radiallahu anhu. Umair ibn al-Humam al-Khazraji of the Ansar radiallahu anhu. Umair ibn Abi Waqqas of the Muhajirun radiallahu anhu. Awf ibn al-Harith al-Khazraji of the Ansar radiallahu anhu. Mubashir ibn Abdul Mundhir al-Awsi of the Ansar radiallahu anhu. Mu'awwith ibn al-Harith ibn Afra al-Khazraji radiallahu anhu. We know about him. And Mihja ibn Salih of the Muhajirun radiallahu anhu and Yazid ibn al-Harith al-Khazraji radiallahu anhu of the Ansar. So 14 Muslims were martyred at Badr. Six of them were from the Muhajirun who migrated to Medina. Eight of them were from the Ansar. And of the eight of the Ansar, six were from the Khazraj 
uh, from the Khazraj tribe and the others were from the Aus, the two from the Aus. And we call them Ausi or Khazraji based on that tribal designation. These are the martyrs, radiallahu anhum. We are literally here because of them. They are a secondary cause for us being here because that was the day of Furqan. Now, how long after this battle did the Muslims remain in Badr? They remained for three days. And this is significant because it, this doesn't mean, when we look at the battle, it doesn't mean that they won and as soon as they won and took the spoils and the prisoners, they packed up and went straight back to Medina. No, they remained at Badr for three more days. And there's wisdom in this. Some of it is very direct and some is indirect. Indirectly, it's uh, a strategy. You have to make sure that the enemy is not regrouping to come back and attack. What would happen if they were to go back to Medina immediately after the battle while Quraysh went quickly back, regrouped, re-equipped, and attacked them from behind? They had to make sure that there's no one approaching, that they are going all the way back to Mecca, defeated. So they had to make sure. So they wait three days and they have scouts to make sure that they actually are going all the way. Uh, another reason they waited three days is because they had to attend to the shuhada, to the martyrs. And they had to attend to those who were slain among the mushrikun. So we talk a little bit about that. One of the purposes of them staying behind for three days was to bury the martyrs. And in our fiqh, our jurisprudence, there's some differences between how shuhada are buried in how ordinary people are buried, dying from other causes. Uh, and there are some minor fiqhi differences uh, even in this area, but by and large, the shuhada, you don't wash the body of a shaheed. If someone is killed in battle, a Muslim killed in battle, uh, a legitimate battle, you do not wash their body, you do not pray the janazah over them. There's a khilaf here. And the shaheed is buried wherever they die. They're not transported elsewhere. This is the sunnah for those people who are slain in battle. And that's why if you go to Badr today, that's where you're going to find the shuhada. The shuhada are not transported to Medina. The shuhada of Uhud are not buried in Al-Baqi'ah. They're buried at Uhud, right below the, the archer's mount. They're buried right there. So they're buried there. Likewise, the wounds of the shuhada that they sustained in battle are not washed. Because the Prophet ﷺ told us that when the shaheed is resurrected on the day of judgment, the scent of the blood oozing from the wounds will be like the scent of musk. And they'll be fresh wounds, not causing them pain, but they these wounds are testifying on the Day of Judgment to the sacrifices they made in this world. So the wounds remain, but they are emitting the fragrance of musk on the Day of Judgment. So they're not washed and they're not tended to. And they bury the, you bury the shaheed in the clothes they're wearing. They're not shrouded. There's some fiqhi differences here, but this is the main line, jamhur way of dealing with the shuhada who are killed in battle. And so the, and this is all being revealed by Allah Ta'ala to the Prophet Sallallahu in the moment, in the practice, because this is the sunnah. The sunnah is a form of wahi. And so we learn this sunnah in real time in the aftermath of Badr. The, the Muslims witness this. And this is where we derive the fiqh of how we deal with shuhada. So that was one reason. The other reason we said is to have this defensive posture there at Badr to make sure Quraysh don't come back to launch a counter-attack. Now, there's something else here that, uh, to my knowledge, none of the ulama of Sira have mentioned it, but it stands out. Uh, we know from the narrative of Badr that 
initially Quraysh didn't go to fight, or they went to fight if it was going to be a fight, but they went as a deterrent. And once the, the caravan of Abu Sufyan was protected, what did they intend to do at Badr? They intended to spend three days there. Remember this? But what did they intend to do for three days at Badr? They intended to party. They wanted to send a message to all of the other tribes that here they are in Badr, out in force, armed to the teeth, and where are the most, there's no fight. They're not going to come. We repelled them. We averted their attacks. And here we are in all of our force. And we're going to spend three days drinking wine and partying in revelry with our singing girls, playing the tambourine, and just eating and relaxing. So they plan to spend three days in disobedience to Allah Ta'ala in a drunken stupor, basically. But here the Muslims are spending three days tending to their slain martyrs and resting and being on guard and maintaining their salat and expressing gratitude to Allah Ta'ala for victory. So what a difference between how group one wanted to spend their three days and how this group spends their three days. There's quite a contrast. For the Muslims, it's shukr and rest. And for the others, it's drunken revelry. And that's quite a, contra- quite a contrast. Now, we want to close on, on the story about the burial. So we mentioned the burial of the shuhada being buried at Uhud uh, in the manner that shuhada martyrs are buried. What about those who were slain among the mushrikun? How were they buried? Of the 50 slash 70 or so who were killed in battle, all of them but Umayyah bin Khalaf were put into uh, an emptied well. So a well was used. Not a well that's the main source where there's water. It's just a well. It's a big hole. The bodies of the mushrikun were put into this well and it was covered up by them throwing uh, rocks over it. This was how they were buried. And so one may ask, uh, shouldn't they be afforded a proper burial? And the answer is, this is a proper burial. They, their bodies weren't left to rot and for vultures to pick at them. Right? There is some, you know, really that's more to do with protecting people from the foul odor. Right? This, these individuals have no hurma after death. Right? These are the a'da'ullah wa rasulihi, the enemies of Allah and His Messenger. They have no sanctity after death. They don't have those kinds of rights afforded to them. But they were put in the well. They were put in the well. And this is the historical norm between armies. The slain forces, they're put in a ditch and they're buried. That's that. And that's what happened. So all of them were there. The bodies were covered up and only one of them was outside of the well, Umayyah bin Khalaf. Now, on the third day, as they were departing for Medina, the Prophet ﷺ diverted the caravan somewhat and went over to this well where the chiefs of Quraysh are buried. And there at the well, he addresses them, calling them out by name, one by one. The hadith mentions the, it, the wording, name after name after name. He says, Ya Utbah ibn Rabi'ah, Ya Walid ibn Utbah, Ya Aba Jahl. He names them all out and then he says, Hal wajadtum ma wa'ada rabbukum haqqa. Have you not found the promise of Allah true? Qad wajadna wa'ada rabbina haqqa. Oh, kama qal. We have found the promise of Allah true. Have you found the promise of Allah true? Because they're now seeing a different reality. They are now in the barzakh, but they are hearing the Prophet ﷺ. Now, this is still early on in Islam. It's the second year after Hijrah. And there are certain matters of the unseen, of the ghaib, that were unclear to the companions. The companions witnessed this. And Umar radiallahu anhu, he says, Ya Rasulullah, how is it you can address bodies 
that have no souls? And the Prophet ﷺ replies, I swear by the one in whose hands is my soul, you are not more able to hear me now any better than they can hear me, but they cannot respond to me. This is recorded by Imam Muslim. And this opens up a topic that uh, has been discussed back and forth by scholars throughout the centuries, which is Sama' al-Mawta, do the deceased hear the living? Uh, and, is, and if they do, what is the nature of the hearing and how much of it and to what extent? We don't need to go into the back and forth, but the majority position is that the deceased do hear uh, either in a more open-ended way or a limited way, but it's affirmed because the one who created in us the ability to hear in this dunya can create in the deceased the ability to hear in the barzakh. Right? Nothing is impossible for Allah Ta'ala. And the verses of the Qur'an that negate the dead hearing, because there are verses, that negation is not absolute. And when you look at them individually and compare them to the narrations that affirm hearing, you see that the verses negating the dead hearing is a very particular negation. It's negating the hearing that will be of benefit. The hearing that will be of benefit, right? Because hearing can mean, in Arabic, you know, even in English, hear me out. You know what I mean? Hear this, understand it, apply it, be benefited from this. So that's what's negated, not absolute hearing, right? So but this hadith is clear that he addressed them and that they heard his address from within the barzakh. Uh, so inshallah we'll stop here and next week we're going to look at more of the aftermath as they're making their way back to Medina the issue of Ghanima the spoils of war the issue of the prisoners and how those things unfolded and how Allah revealed verses detailing what was going on before, during and after Badr inshallah ta'ala والله رسوله أعلم وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم. وإياكم. Any questions? Why am I looking at you first? First week back. The first thing I think is a comment. I I I don't know if I'm fair with something, but this one of the شهدات that was mentioned was Umayyad بن أبي وقاص. I'm not mistaken, isn't that the brother of Sa'd bin Abi Waqqas? Correct? Yeah. Remember the story when they were lining up on the outskirts of Medina and his brother was very worried. He was hiding. Why was he hiding? He was too young. He was, too young. He was like 14. Uh, and he was skinny, small, and the, the narration says that he couldn't even hold the sword properly on the scabbard. The belt was too large. They had to cinch it up. And he was the exception among those allowed to go from these young people. So he was slain at Badr. With knowing who he was. Right. The brother of Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. Exactly. And then the second thing I had uh, is this hadith collect about uh, uh, an ard Consuming the bodies of the martyrs. Yes. As they were when they passed away, essentially. Right. So there's narrations that mention that with regard to the, to the martyrs, and narrations that mention that with regard to the Anbiya. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, there's a book that was written in the 1980s, 86 or 87. It was called Ayatul Rahman fi Jihad al Afghan. It was by Shaykh Abdullah Azzam, Rahimahullah. And he has a long story, but he was uh, an Arab who went there in the 80s during the Cold War uh, with the Afghans. But this book he compiled uh, among the different uh, miraculous things that he saw or others saw there. And a large number of these narrations that are coming from him or others relate to people who, because in the Hanafi school, you know, the whole issue of uh, transporting them 
or praying janazah over them. That happened with those martyrs. So they would sometimes uh, move them or have to move them. And they would notice that this person was slain in battle against the Soviets. And they come a month later, two months later, and the body's fresh, the wounds are fresh. Not only that, the beard has grown a little longer. It used to be fist length, it's even longer now. Uh, the nails grew slightly. You know, you see things like that. That's today, right? So these things are affirmed. And, yeah. 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 You can't make them hear a hearing that will benefit them. Like there's nothing because it's done. You can make the living hear if they you know you say something they listen, but the listening ultimately is a decision they have to make, right? 